This is a replay of our interview with Greg Knuckles, who is uh, getting his master's degree in exercise physiology and science, and also is a world-class powerlifter. There's just so much good information, we wanted to put it out there again. So if you haven't listened to this one before, we highly recommend that you do now. Check it out. So I guess the first thing, obviously, you know who I am. I'm Andy. This is Joel Ludke. Uh, he's an athletic trainer, director of sports performance here at UWL. Kyle Boland, he's a chiropractor, his own practice. He's my chiropractor, and he's the best damn one on the planet. <laughs> and then Andrew Jagum, PhD, obviously, Lindenwood, former UWL professor and my undergrad professor. Good deal. I'm Greg. Good to meet you guys. <laughs> Hello, Greg. Um, I have no real degrees to speak of or fancy titles, so I'm a little out of place here, but try to make it work. I also don't have any fancy degrees or titles to my own yet. Yeah, but you guys are really strong. Yeah, so. strong. <laughs> I think you, you won the good, beard. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say you got really good beard. Yeah, we, we've got the two best beards on the call, so that's that's what really matters. Put it on the CV. So we were just kind of talking about what, because obviously this was kind of last second. Usually we'd have kind of prompts for you to go through and an idea of what we wanted to talk about. But with kind of your wealth of knowledge and then just us being an audience, we had ideas about possibly talking about the difficulties of science and application, but then also the difficulties of coming in with such a wealth of knowledge and such a wealth of practical experience to somewhere where people aren't always so entrenched in the literature and maybe have some outdated ideas or you disagree with some of their stances and how you kind of go about that and um, just your general experience with coming to academia uh, with for your master's degree and with obviously just as much knowledge I'd be willing to argue as probably your advisors uh sure we can we can uh, take a crack at that <laughs> don't say anything that'll get yourself in trouble though I guess yeah that's that that's that's what I'm trying to think about uh <laughs> no it, it should be fine it should be fine who wants to bring it in I, that you know, from my perspective, uh, just putting my professor hat on, that's one thing that I was I was wondering what your experience have been like, you know, coming from more of a non traditional path, I guess, to academia of, of what it's like having those prior experiences and that knowledge base to now kind of go back through the education process. Is it been easy? Are you learning a lot, or is it remedial for you, or just kind of how has that process been? Uh, the hardest part honestly is just that I have so many irons in the fire. Um, like, I don't know, like the other people in my, in my cohort seem to be finding the program pretty difficult, but like from where I'm sitting, if I wasn't trying to like hold up my end of a marriage and run two businesses, like it would be a walk in the park. 
Um, but add all of that other stuff on top of it. And uh, I occasionally miss miss the feeling of my bed. Uh, <laughs> a lot of short nights, a lot of, a lot of stuff going on, but it is what it is. Um, as far as as far as the actual classes go, um, so I'm at UNC, and it's like a very, very research-focused program. Um, you know, R1 institution, everyone's trying to pump out a bunch of papers. Um, and so I don't know how they would feel about this characterization, but this is kind of the consensus view of all of the master's students. Um, the program very much seems to be set up uh, such that the classes are very easy. Um, just so you don't have to spend too much time like reading and studying so you can spend more time in the lab doing research. Um, which that was disappointing to me to some degree, um, especially the statistics class. Uh, I'm weird in that I really like stats and I was hoping I'd get more out of my statistics class, um, but it was uh, pretty remedial. Um, and similar with XFIS, I didn't go into it thinking I'd get too much out of it just because I've spent the last four years being out of school, just reading about physiology all the time. Um, but I was kind of hoping I'd pick up more from that class than I did. Uh, but it is what it is. I learned a lot in uh, in the lab methods class I took. Um, and then I've just learned a lot hands-on actually doing research. Um, and that, that was the biggest reason I went back to school in the first place. Um, just because like, I mean, my nine to five is varied, but the majority of it is reading research, writing about research. Um, and I'm cognizant of the fact that really in all domains of life, there's a difference between like kind of academic knowledge of something and hands-on knowledge of something. Um, you know, kind of the whole deal of like, you never trust a pencil neck strength coach all that much because it's like, eh, you, you've read about this in books, but how much like how much deep understanding do you have of this topic? Cause it's clear you haven't applied it too much to yourself. Right. Uh, and I kind of felt the same way about myself science. Um, I knew how it worked just kind of on a general level, but I was confident that there were like parts of that process I was missing just from having not actually gone through the process and done it myself. Um, so yeah, I mainly went back to school for research experience. Uh, and I've gotten quite a bit of that. So, um, Overall, uh, overall, it's been rough just with how many balls I'm trying to keep in the air. But the actual experience of the program itself has been uh, pretty solid overall. Good. So would you almost recommend that path to other students? Do you think it's beneficial to get more real world experience, kind of figure out what what you want to do or how that practical side of it fits into the academic model and then bring that back to the classroom? Or do you think you're, you know, the other way around is the ideal route. Uh, I feel like there are pros and cons to both approaches. Um, I think you're going to get more out of what you learn in the classroom if you already have kind of a, a decent understanding of how that stuff is applied in the field. Um, at the same time, kind of on a practical level, um, going from 
being out in the world and working for a few years to transitioning to a TA stipend uh, isn't isn't the most fun thing. Um, and there are a couple other people in my cohort who had a similar path. Uh, one person was out for a year. One person uh, got their master's in marketing and worked for like eight years and then decided she didn't like marketing and wanted to go back to school for exodus. Um, and we're, you know, like I'm trying to keep my businesses running as well, but both of them are like, man, it sure was nice when I wasn't like living at 10% of the poverty line. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's a, a practical drawback of, you know, spending some time out of school before going back. Uh, but I, I do, I do think um, having that practical experience on the front end does, does enrich the education process. Yeah. Do you ever just look around at some of the other students in your class and be like, you guys just don't get it. Like you, you just don't know what the real world's like and, and almost get frustrated in that process. Cause there's sometimes I just want to yell that at my undergrad students, but you guys don't realize how this is going to be used in your future endeavors. Like, and just, they're not grasping how they're going to need it or how they're going to use it, you know, outside of the classroom. Um, Sometimes on the whole, though, I would say that I would say the, the other kids in my cohort are a pretty savvy bunch overall. Um, so one of them took a year off, um, did some personal training and now is going back to school. Uh, a lot of the other ones come from a strength sports background. So there's like three current or ex powerlifters in addition to me in the program. Um, you know, have spent some time under the bar and uh, if not spent time like formally coaching people, at least like, you know, helping out friends who were on their powerlifting teams at their old schools. Um, so I would say most of them actually do have at least like some degree of practical experience going in. Um, <laughs> the, the thing that... Uh, the thing about their behavior that frustrates me the most is again, going back to our, uh, our just living on scraps TA stipend, like end of every month, they're complaining, like, I have no money. This is terrible. I'm like, well, you go out to the bars three nights a week and run up $50 bar tabs. Like, of course you have no money. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's, that's a real world skill that I feel like a lot of them haven't mastered, but in terms of uh, being in a decent position to, to, at least see how they're going to apply a, at least a decent amount of what they're learning in the classroom. I, I think they're a pretty savvy bunch overall. Awesome. What's been like, obviously there's a huge difference between kind of like we were talking about reading research and applying it to a writing scenario. What's been the biggest surprise for you? I don't know your research background if you did any in undergrad, but kind of getting into the lab for maybe the first time or certainly for the first time as an in-depth type researcher, what's been the biggest surprise or lesson or takeaway that you've kind of gotten so far? Um, I'd say the biggest thing is, <laughs> I, I would say the biggest thing is just how hard it is to do research on human subjects. Um, <laughs> Yeah, they don't and, listen. Yeah, I've, I've heard that's a challenge. And I, I will say that I, um, 
I would say I probably read studies a lot more fairly and somewhat less critically now because I see things where they could be improved, but then I'm like, yeah, I, I also totally get why you didn't do that because that would be a huge pain in the ass. Yeah. I think that was a huge takeaway for me too. Just, uh, uh, you're taught to read critically, but you're not taught to read realistically until you do it yourself. And mm -hmm. my first study that I ran at TCU had – I think it was a 63% attrition rate. <laughs> then after that point on, I was like, oh, okay, I get it. That's why people do animal research. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and just like, just the logistical challenges that go into it. So last semester, uh, we bit off way more than we could chew. Uh, there were two training studies going on, one of them with 89 subjects and the other one with 40, 47 subjects, I think. Um, and both of those studies involved leg pressing. And I think like peak concurrent enrollment was like 37 in one study and like 53 in the other. Uh, and we only had one leg press. And uh, it quickly became obvious like, oh shit, we need to buy a new leg press. <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, just kind of like basic logistical stuff like that that if you're just reading a study and you don't know what else is going on in that lab at the time, like that would never occur to you. Um, do you get, do you get more of an appreciation from even the experimental design standpoint when you look at it from a research researcher's perspective instead of like a coach's perspective of, yeah, I know this isn't how it's traditionally done out in the field, but we need to control it. We need to do it this way first to identify, you know, any mechanisms or whatever, and then look at, how it can be applied in the weight room? Uh, if I'm being honest, not really. Like, I, I think I had a pretty solid grasp of that coming in. Gotcha. I have more of a, just a curiosity question. Who's your primary advisor? Uh, Claudio Battalini. Okay. Gotcha. So what, are you going on to the next level after you finish up your master's or what are you planning on doing? God, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> No, I, like, um, I, I thought I might want to coming in, um, but for me, like just getting the experience doing research was, was the biggest, um, the biggest thing I wanted to get out of it. Uh, I don't personally have any need for a PhD. Like I don't, I don't know that I'd really get anything out of it cause I'm not looking for an academic job. Um, and you know, it might make my blog look more legit, but I'm not willing to mortgage four years of my life for that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, probably not. How did you get connected with some of the guys that you're collaborating with on some of your, your writing projects and stuff? Uh, social media mostly. Yeah. Um, Either them reaching out to me saying, I stumbled across your blog, you seem less dumb than most bloggers, uh, <laughs> or me coming across their research and being like, hey, you're doing cool stuff, let's chat. Yeah, um, awesome. yeah mostly mostly just like cold emails. Do you have uh, an idea of what your thesis is gonna be yet? <laughs> I do, I have a very good idea. I'm going to be looking at uh, the effects of sex and menstrual cycle phase on acute fatigue and recovery from resistance exercise. Nice. I'm really interested in the menstrual phase stuff. 
um, especially recovery, because there's there's at this point three papers looking at like menstrual cycle phase based training, um, either loading more of the training into the follicular phase or luteal phase, um, and all three of them found positive positive effects for follicular phase based training, um, but there's not hardly any good like mechanistic work looking into why that would be. Um, a lot of, I mean, if you look at the mechanistic stuff, uh, there's an argument to be made that um, you would think a lot of it would be driven by estrogen because it's a pretty solid anti-inflammatory, seems to help with the recovery process from training, but average estrogen levels are higher in the uh, luteal phase than the follicular phase, but all of those studies tend to indicate that follicular weighted training tends to be best. Um, and there's only been one paper to this point looking at recovery during the menstrual phase. Uh, that was Markovsky 2014. And I, I, I want to say there aren't any papers looking at acute fatigability, um, at least with resistance exercise. There's a fair amount of like repeated sprint research looking at that, um, finding that women tend to be a little bit more fatigable in the luteal phase because um, their like, body temp set points a little bit higher due to the progesterone, so they don't thermoregulate quite as well, so they fatigue a little bit faster. Um, but I don't think anyone's actually looked at that with resistance training. So I'm definitely interested in the male versus female comparison, but I think, I think the, the more interesting and novel stuff is going to be the, the menstrual cycle stuff. I'll certainly have some implications for birth control use and, and how that's used or not used because that's a pretty common option for a lot of female athletes. Like the university level, I, I bet it's close to 50%. Usually when we screen for that are, are on birth control. So I'm surprised it would be that low. It, it very well could be higher too. That's just kind of a ballpark figure of what we've seen. Uh, just looking at like general population data I've seen, um, I think for typical college-aged females, it's something like, 55, 60%. Uh, and I, I'd assume it would be higher in athletes, but I'm, I'm not sure about that. Yeah. And my experience, it was always, they could get it paid for, especially at the division one levels, if it would cause them distress in running or it was painful. So then the university would cover it because it was affecting their athletic ability. Interesting. So a lot of ours were on, on it yeah. for multiple reasons, I'm sure. <laughs> Kind of go the other side of that of females that you know are amenorrheic from excessive training or under eating or a coupling of both. Yeah, I mean that that's one of the reasons I'm glad I'm going to be working with strength athletes because um, we tend to not under eat <laughs> at least as much as like team sport athletes. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Cool. So when are you starting that one up this year? Uh, yeah, working on the IRB over the next couple of weeks, um, and then going to get rolling, start a fall semester. Okay. So yep. this, did you just finish your first year? I did. See? <laughs> you better get going here. I think, I think I'm a little behind. Um, <laughs> I always, I always wonder this when I talk to like people who are generally entrenched in science and literature. Um, what would be your biggest 
advice to somebody who's just getting into that world as far as anything? So it could be how to approach reading a paper or interpreting a paper, anything like that. Uh, this might just be my bias, but I would say get really comfortable with statistics because I feel like everything else people generally pick up on. Uh, so more so for people going into like grad school and wanting to pr pursue science uh, in terms of just like kind of casual people just reading papers for fun. Uh, they're generally bad at all of it. <laughs> but it, in terms of where just like talking, talking either to people kind of at my level, at the master's level, or people who um, like have their PhDs and do science, like it seems like it's not uncommon to come across people who either don't have a great grasp of statistics or understand them, but still don't feel confident with them. Um, so that seems to be a, a pretty pretty common blind spot uh even though it's it's so important like i mean ultimately science comes down to being able to design a good experiment being able to like actually execute the experiment well and then be able to analyze it properly like it's it's a third of the process um and i find that a lot of people either just don't like it or aren't good at it um so yeah kind of get ahead of the curb, figure out statistics. They're fun, they're useful. With that being said, do you have a good resource for somebody who may need to get better at their stats? Asking for a friend. <laughs> <laughs> um, Other than reading stat books. You know, I was gonna say read stat books. <laughs> like, so so the, I, I, feel, I feel like that's the biggest issue. Um, Cause like, you know, you're into physiology everyone reads papers like everyone reads uh-oh uh-oh that's class even if the readings were assigned like i would i would guess less than five percent um so yeah like if you're not mathematically inclined it's probably not going to be fun uh like they're good just yeah. just kind of work your way through a basic stats book and then Past that, um, probably the kind of supplemental stats resource I like the most is uh, there's a psychology statistics blog called Data Colada. Um, the main guy who writes that is Yuri Simonson. Uh, he's really, really bright, and I find he writes about statistics on a pretty, uh, pretty accessible level. Um, so once you get a, a pretty decent grasp of basic basic statistics, uh, you'll probably enjoy reading that site. It's something I've always wanted to learn stats because I feel like even just reading, you can't truly interpret a paper if you're not sure that the stats are concrete. You kind of have to take it at face value for what they're saying mm -hmm. if you can't diagnose a stats issue. So I wanted to learn stats, but our program has one stats class and it's in your third semester. And I feel like it, having more than one would be ideal and then possibly earlier because I don't know how you're supposed to gather knowledge if you can't properly interpret. I, I mean, I feel like even if you just know the basic stuff, you're ahead of a lot of the people in our field though. Um, like two, two really 
big, very basic errors that I see a lot um, are people running ANOVAs and looking and saying like one group had a significant main effect and the other group didn't, therefore group A did better than group B. They never tested for an interaction. Uh, probably because that doesn't come built into SPSS. Yeah. SPSS is absolute garbage. Um, but so people do that a lot, and that's not correct. Um, and another thing I see a lot, uh, more so in kind of like the sports science realm than like the X phys realm, um, is people just calculating effect sizes and being like, oh, this effect size is bigger than that effect size, therefore something good happened. Like that's that's not how it works at all, man. <laughs> um, and and like they're comparing like within group effect sizes, not even calculating the between group effect size. And like that's just laziness. Yeah. Um, but I I feel like it's not people being intentionally misleading. I feel like they probably just don't know better. Um, right. But like th those two things, like that's that's very basic stuff. And I feel like a lot of people in our field don't even have like that level of stuff down well and kind of going back to what you said about your experience with your current stats class that was kind of similar to me what throughout my grad school career i hardly learned a thing in the stats classes i took even at the phd level we were outsourced into the engineering program so we took statistics with all the, the doctoral level engineering students and mm -hmm. the type of analysis that they do all the examples just didn't apply to any of the work that we were doing with, with human-based research. So we were forced to learn kind of on our own through learning just by doing, you know, what our, our mentor is having us do and the type of stats that we ran within our lab. And then just through years of experience and, and just reading more and interpreting more. So it was almost like we, I didn't quite get it in the classroom. So I was just forced to look elsewhere to, to pick up on what I needed. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that's pretty common. Which is really unfortunate. Like it is. that should that should be a a class that departments take seriously. I think it brings up a good point though, with something I've learned since well, even during my undergrad, because no comment. We have the same stats professor. <laughs> um, <and laughs> coming to coming to grad school now and kind of being on your own, I think it's important for people who are looking to get into this type of work, research or academia, whatever it might be, to take your education into your own hands. And like you said, we were forced to learn other ways, but a lot of other people that I've met, just if I'm not gonna be taught, I'm not gonna learn. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. it's important to take your, your destiny essentially into your own hands and read textbooks, even though I don't wanna read a stats book. I guess, I've. While you were talking, I was thinking about, I read physiology textbooks all the time. What's the difference? Just a part, another part of the craft. Um, mm -hmm. But just overall, doing what it takes to further your education. Even if you look at it in a selfish way, if you're not just inter interested in it for the scientific approach, if you're good at stats, it makes you a hell of a lot more marketable. Yeah. Like you said, most people aren't. Well, well and, and not, not just more marketable. Like, I, I feel like... Um, not just knowing what stats to run on a data set, but like getting comfortable enough with stats that it kind of becomes a default way of thinking. Mm -hmm. I feel like that just helps your general decision-making process. Um, 
it, like it helps you view decisions more probabilistically and less like just black and white. Like just getting in it enough that you just like I don't like this. But but that also might just be me. Like I love numbers. Um like the the biggest complaint I have about humans is they're not numbers. Like, <laughs> Sorry to disappoint. <laughs> It's, was, it's fine. It's a it's a relatively trivial issue, um, <laughs> but but one I run into a lot. What yeah, scale are you using to interpret that? <laughs> Do what? What scale are you using to interpret the relatively trivial issue? <laughs> Did you run analyses? Uh, I mean, I'm definitely dealing with it with a D less than point two here, uh, but but greater than zero. Okay. It was actually that it's funny you bring up the human problem problem uh we just had we had to propose like a fake project and i ended up just based on the design i wanted to do the theoretical project we had to look into like our fake rat research and just the thought of working with like mice is so much more appealing than recruiting 80 people <laughs> study. Yeah. i don't know that i could I don't know that I could ever do rodent research. I wouldn't want to kill the little guys. <laughs> yeah, that part's tough. It's respectable. Yeah. But, but they listen. They're there when you need them. The 12 hour light dark cycle. Yeah. <laughs> they're the perfect research if you don't mind the limited application of what you actually care about. All right. You know, so honestly, like, that's a really good point. And one of my pet peeves is. Uh, when people talk about RCTs and they're like, RCTs are great. They're the gold standard. You can use them to infer causality. No, you can't like you, you can. If like the logic of that is if you manipulate one variable and you get different outcomes, you know that the variable you manipulated is what led to those different outcomes. But like there are so many uncontrolled variables in human research. Um, like I, I feel like you can get to like, maybe pseudo causality, but like you can never establish causality. Yeah. I mean, even if you think about it, just the nature of a normal distribution, there's always going to be an outlier and probability wise, you could have a lot of outliers in one specific study. Mm -hmm. and so even with rat research or mice research, yeah, you're likely looking at causality there because you're you're kind of controlling it to the best of our ability to control a design. Mm -hmm. Everything, but even then, even down to the fact that all of the mice are incredibly genetically similar. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but even then, I, I mean, it shows the importance of multiple studies. You could just get a weird, funky result based on even if it's just maybe the thermostat miss. Uh, mishap, you had a mishap with the temperature in the lab one day, and so your results turned out funky. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. That's one of my biggest pet people citing one study as the end-all be-all. Yep. Or not understanding statistics and yeah. incorrectly interpreting their findings and cherry-picking some of the data and blasting it all over social media or something. Cherry-picking is the one thing on social media. 
one issue that we've had with uh, humans, human research, I don't know if you guys are struggling with this, is being able to adapt to some of the younger generations and how they are accessible. So it used to be you could do a lot of things via paper or call them or email them to remind them to show up for testing or eat this, don't eat that or whatever. And, and now the response rates to those means are, are just spiraling downhill. So now we're having to get more almost tech savvy and you know, Snapchatting them or texting them. And some of our compliance logs now, we're, we're going to propose that we use Instagram to monitor compliance. So we're going to have them set up a fake account and they're going to hashtag what they were doing. Hashtag, you know, post a picture of them taking a supplement with the hashtag so that we can follow the hashtag and then we can see them, you know, be more compliant on a daily basis. So we're trying to have to adapt our data collection and, and compliance techniques to just the changing times and how people use technology. Huh. <laughs> that's, that's nifty. Uh, <laughs> I, we, we use a lot of text messaging. Um, man, th that study I told you last semester with 89 subjects, uh, the person who was shafted with scheduling all of those and like making sure that they actually showed up to all of their sessions, like God bless her. That was a, that was a horrendous job. She was just like, texting 18 year old kids all day saying like, come to the lab, come to the lab, you have a session. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, definitely not just like purely relying on email. No, it's we're, we hardly get anyone yeah. to respond to an email anymore or read it for their pre-test instructions and stuff. So we, we hardly even do it that way anymore. It's kind of frustrating because before, I feel like before grad school, I got pretty big into like texting people and then when you get more entrenched into more of the academia, you're taught emails are the appropriate form of com communication. And then you start running research and you have to text a bunch of kids and none of them listen. Now you're going backwards. Yeah, man. And, and they have to email for other classes, right? Like, isn't that a thing? Like, don't they have to check email? I would, I would think so, but I don't know. I had a kid, this is kind of unrelated, to to research but i had a kid in one of my classes and he ended up not turning in his final assignments so i i'm i try not to fail anyone for like my activity courses because it's an activity course so i send him an email i send everyone who's gonna fail I'm like hey why are you why'd you miss so much class or why didn't you turn in your assignments whatever and like everyone except for one kid replied and this one kid oh two weeks later email me saying, hey, I just got this email. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. It's for due two weeks ago, man. Whoops. Yeah, that's... I, I had a kid this semester who, um, like, three or four weeks into the class just stopped showing up, which is fine. I assumed he dropped it. Uh, checked my class roster, like, a week later. Realized that he was still on my class roster. So I emailed him and said, like, hey, dude, you either need to start coming to class like ASAP or you need to make sure you drop the class before like your period for dropping classes ends. Uh, never get an email back. Email them again like a week later. Again, don't get an email back. Um, I'm like, I obviously don't have this kid's phone number. Uh, I bumped into him on campus one day and this was like after the, the drop ad period had ended. Um, and I was like, dude, what's going on? Like, you need to talk to your advisor, like, ASAP to see if you can get some sort of special exception to drop this class, because otherwise, like, 
you have an F and there's nothing I can do about it. And he's like, why didn't you tell me? I'm like, I did. I emailed you like four times. And he's like, oh, I don't check email. And I'm like, well, not checking email just earned you an F. And there's nothing I can do about it. It's like, come on, man. This is college. Check your dang email. I feel like you should have known that anyways. It's not your responsibility to babysit everybody. Yeah, but it's these days. (laughs) (laughs) How'd how'd your uh, activity course react to your, was it 605 pod squat? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Um, They were, they were very surprised. Uh, so like, so I taught two. so UNC has, uh, lifetime fitness classes, which are like required to graduate. Um, so most people who sign up for those classes aren't like incredibly motivated. Um, and then there's, uh, physical activity classes, which are like elective classes. And so the kids in my PHYA class, like a lot of them were members of like UNC's powerlifting club. So they knew who I, like, they, they knew who I was. Um, and they were like bugging me the whole time, like the whole semester, like lift something heavy, lift something heavy. And I'm like, no, I'm the instructor of this course. You guys are lifting. I'm instructing you how to lift. That's how this works. Uh, the kids in my other classes had literally no idea who I was, uh, which is good. That's, that's the way I wanted it. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> the last day I was like, Hey, do you guys want to see me lift something? And they were like, yes. Uh, and I was, and this is while I was taking attendance and I'm like, okay, to you, go start loading up a squat bar. And they're like, what do you want? Like 225? I'm like, yeah, we'll start at 405. And they were like, <gasps> like just eyes bugging out. Uh, and then they were like, do you like do this competitively? And I was like, yeah, you can Google me. They <laughs> <laughs> give me an idea for, I, I never, I never tell anyone my background. Some people just know because they've either looked me up or seen it while I lift mm-hmm. the racket the random times I do. That could be an idea for next semester. I should just load up a bar and Maybe you can bet they can bet they're great on it. Yeah. yeah there you go. <laughs> All right. If you wanna if you wanna pass this class, I, I haven't lifted in a while, but what if you, you can out squat me, <laughs> yeah. I'll give you an A. There you go. Just tell them if they can out total your squat. Yeah, there you go. So what's next for you after school then? Um, hmm. I have some plans, but I don't know the degree to which I am at liberty to talk about them. Um, so like everything I'm currently doing, I'm going to keep doing. Um, a lot of things regarding the business I've kind of kept on hold for a while because I knew I was going to go back to school. Um, and I didn't want even more balls in the air when I went back. Um, so going to expand coaching quite a bit. Um, we have some plans for, uh, the research review mass that, uh, would be time consuming to some degree. So we haven't implemented them yet. Um, and then there is, there is one big secret plan that, uh, I should be able to talk about in like, two months or so uh but probably shouldn't yet all right so i'll message you in two months we'll keep an eye on the floor then okay well that sounds good you want to ask the clinically press questions we don't have to get a number of months so you got any questions for us or anything anything else you want to chat about uh 
what what is what is your advice to me to make uh, the whole thesis project process run as smoothly as possible? Have you picked your committee yet? I have. Okay. Um, I, I think the best advice is the most, the more organized you are up front, the better. So having assistants lined up, having people's time allocated to exactly what they're going to be tasked to, to follow. And then the, the more instructions that you can have for participants and, and ways to monitor compliance, collect and organize your data as you're getting it. Again, just the more organized and prepared you can be before you start, I think the easier it, it'll go so that everyone knows exactly what, what they're doing once, once you hit that go button so that you're not making extra work for yourself or you didn't, I mean, you're going to know this already, but you didn't enter the data incorrectly in Excel and now you got to rearrange it and all those different kinds mm -hmm. of things. So the, just the more organized you can be up front, I think the better and the more smoothly things will run. Cool. Well, that's probably the you best I got for, for a thesis standpoint. And then the other one would have been choose your committee wisely. <laughs> but <laughs> you already got that lined up. Who, who else are you, you working with there at, at UNC? Uh, so Dr. B is my advisor, Dr. Badalini. Um, and then the other two on my committee are Eric Hansen and Tony Hackney. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Do you guys get to do any kind of um, like research rotations or hop around to different labs or, or work with different PIs there at all? Um, to some degree. Um, if I'm being completely frank, not as much as was advertised when I interviewed, uh, but it is what it is. I get it, uh, logistics and such. Um, I did have a chance to do some biomechanics stuff this most. So the people in my cohort who want to go into coaching mostly just like found uh, like gyms to intern at. Um, Couple people who want to go the physical therapy route after found like physical therapy clinics to intern at, and then the people who want to go the research route mostly just like picked another lab within the department to um, not really intern with, but just like be a research assistant for. Mm -hmm. um, so I did get some biomechanics experience this semester. That was fun. Good. Another area that gets you know under the radar sometimes is not a lot of people or places I guess have a good biomechanics person or classes and stuff. I feel like that gets yeah. placed as an afterthought through a lot of programs, unfortunately, mm -hmm. especially in applied biomechanism. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Awesome. Well, you got any other I'm questions? To I don't think so. Well, again, thanks for taking the time to chat with us here yeah, today. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Sorry, it was a little scattered, but I think it was a good conversation. Yeah. What's the what's the name of your podcast? Clinically pressed. Is the name of it? What? Clinically pressed. Cool. So we'll, we'll I'll, I'll message it to you on Facebook. Yeah. Cool. Well, good luck with the thesis here as that kicks off. That's. Uh, <laughs> I wish it was gonna, I could say it's going to be easy, but they're always yeah. challenging for all kinds of different reasons. But. All right. Man, as as long as I can get people recruited. I think I'll be good. Um, it's a, it should be a very manageable project, like just from a just from a time perspective. 
Um, and I cleared out enough of my schedule this semester. So I'm not gonna, the only other class I'm taking is an independent study, which is a stats independent study because I'm a loser. Um, actually, no, so I'm, I'm actually pretty excited about this. Uh, this, is, this is my proselytizing for the day. Have you guys heard about P-curves? I have. Okay, sweet. You guys are like the first people I've ever talked to uh, in semi-real life who have actually heard of people. Um, so like no, no one has ever actually like applied that to any niche of our field whatsoever. Um, a lot in psychology, some in biomedicine, most people in exercise science, exercise, sports science have never even heard of them. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm wondering just kind of how much of the stuff in our field is junk. Um, just how much, how much is actually reliable and how much is just like predicated on publication bias. And I know that when I read a lot of papers, I see a lot of P values that are like 0.048 or something. Um, so yeah, I'm, uh, I'm interested to see how that shakes down. Um, but yeah, so independent study, not teaching next semester, going to be able to devote like 98% of my days to research. Um, and it should be a pretty manageable project. So as long as I can find enough people and specifically women who, who will ascend to my project should, it should be hopefully fairly chill, but we'll see. Well, there's definitely a, a need for that kind of study. I know you'll make Lyle McDonald happen. He'll probably be all over that research. Well, that's that's another bag of worms. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. You have a good rest of the day. Yeah, you too. Thanks, Rick. Thank you for checking out this episode of Clinically Pressed. Go to clinicallypressed.com for full show notes and links to everything that was covered in this episode. While you're there, you have access to all of our episodes, insights, and shorts. You can find Clinically Pressed on YouTube and any podcast outlet. If you could give us a rating, thumbs up, or review on how we are doing, we would greatly appreciate it. To get more free content delivered to your inbox, sign up for the Total Athletic Therapy Newsletter. You'll get direct links to all new clinically pressed episodes, reviews on some of the latest research in health and performance, and links to related podcasts and other items meant to help you make the complicated simple and optimize performance. Thank you for listening and see you next episode.